We are starting, though, talking about what is happening in Surrey when it comes to taxes. This budget is based on what the council voted on, which is to keep the RCMP as the police of jurisdiction. If we were to go with the Surrey Police Service, that number would be significantly more. I've been calling for somebody independent of any of the organizations to do an audit and give us the real numbers, work with everybody together and let's all agree on the numbers before we proceed. Those voices, the first voice you heard there, the Mayor of Surrey, Brenda Locke, and Surrey Councillor Linda Annis, again talking about a proposed double-digit property tax hike for Surrey and many asking questions about what exactly that could look like. Well, joining us to talk a bit more about this is Anita Hubberman, the President and CEO at the Board of Trade. We're going to check in with her momentarily, but we'd also love to hear from you on the buzz line. If you are a resident of Surrey or if you are a business owner, 604-331-BUZZ. That is 604-331-2899. And we'll play some of your comments throughout the show. But let's check in now with Anita Hubberman, the president and CEO at the Surrey Board of Trade. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. What is your response? I know a lot of people are a bit surprised and certainly we are hearing from people not overly excited, you could say, about a double digit proposed tax increase in the city of Surrey when it comes to property tax. What are your thoughts on that? Well, we're really concerned about uh, this property tax increase, which was announced on Saturday and really during a family day weekend, uh, it was uh, really disappointing. Number one, our residents, our workforce, they're going to face a double-digit property tax increase for their homes. Uh, So affordability is at risk. And number two, and what is unclear, is what the tax hit is going to be on businesses. It is always businesses that bear the burden of taxation. And with the different industry classifications that we have, uh, also given the uh, fact that we have the greatest number of manufacturers within British Columbia, and they themselves have faced tax increases as high as 150% already in the past three to four years. Um, Really, it's um, very concerning for the Surrey Board of Trade. And we we heard in those voices as well, and one of the councillors, Linda Annis, saying that as, the way she looks at it is that they don't have all of the numbers and that there needs to be more information, a bit more transparency, uh, somebody independent of the organizations to do an audit and give council the real numbers so they know what they're really looking at. So, um, do you feel like that could make things better or what are your thoughts on, on having an audit of the numbers? Well, I think there's some logic to what Councillor Annis is saying, but, uh, you know, we know that uh, this was going to be a very challenging budget uh, for the new council and the new mayor. And uh, we are seeing um, significant investments that have not occurred in the past four years. We're playing catch up in terms of staffing and infrastructure Uh, pieces. And so we knew it was going to be a challenging budget. You know, we're so disappointed uh, as a business organization that, you know, we didn't know how terrible things were with the city budget. And political decisions have now 
uh, really challenged uh, a business, especially the small and medium-sized business sector, that can't afford to take on any more costs, uh, which continue to escalate uh, out of control. And how do you respond as well to the, these are the options really, and it's and it's looking at options of because we still don't know what the province's decision is going to be as far as does the Surrey Police Service stay, does the transition continue going forward, or does it go back to keeping the RCMP as the police of jurisdiction? But uh, we heard there from the mayor as well that these costs, uh, they, it's either way that there are these high costs associated with. So it seems like even even with a decision, uh, property owners and businesses will be facing a pretty substantial hike. Yes, and Mayor Locke is correct. Uh, You know, there's going to be property tax hits either way that we go. And, uh, you know, these um, changing to a new police force was a major infrastructure decision uh, for the city of Surrey. And it is always the taxpayer, whether they're a resident, owning a home or whether they're a renter where the cost is going to be transferred on to them um, or they're a business. And uh, it's just uh, really concerning that, uh, you know, we're having this uh, property tax increase, but uh, we don't have an economic plan uh, for the city of Surrey. Uh, You know, we're going to be the largest city in British Columbia. And uh, there was no discussion in the corporate reports about this also being a budget focused on being uh, part of a renewed economic and jobs plan. So, you know, I think everything is up in the air until we hear from the B.C. government on this policing infrastructure decision. Uh, But uh, there is such uncertainty for businesses right now. Is there a range, do you think, that's a reasonable increase? Uh, I got a message from somebody as we were speaking saying that he's a Langley City resident and the increase they're looking at potentially there is between 10.5% to 12% when it comes to property tax increases, which that seems like a lot as well. I mean, there are some that make the argument that we still have low property taxes compared to other jurisdictions, but is there a range that you think is a reasonable range? Well, I think between the 5 to 7% range uh, is reasonable. But, uh, you know, here we are in February. It's all already March. Uh, how is it that can businesses prepare for capital reinvestments uh, into their business? How can they expand? How can they hire? We don't even know what other taxes, fees, and levies are going to be on top of uh, this double-digit increase of almost 17% onto businesses. Uh, there's uh, tax increases by regional government, provincial government. We don't know what other fees the city of Surrey is going to uh, also tag on to that. Uh, and every industry classification uh, based upon uh, land usage, you know, will have a different property tax uh, bill when they receive it in July. So it's it's hard for me to say, you know, what a reasonable range is in terms of taxation, but in the face of great inflationary pressures and other cost pressures, you know, it's hard to be an entrepreneur to realize your dream today. All right. Anita Huberman, thanks again, as always, for coming on the show. Uh, appreciate your time today. Thank you.
Well, this is a very cool story, especially if you like things that give us a little glimpse into the past. One of only four known diaries from the 1858 Fraser River Gold Rush is up for sale via private treaty. Soon, that is going to be happening at All Nations Stamp and Coin in Vancouver. So joining us to tell us a little bit more about this is Brian Grant Duff, a collector at All Nations Stamp and Coin Vancouver. Brian, thank you so much for being with us. Good afternoon. Great to be with you. Well, this is such an interesting story, and I saw a picture of the diary. But what can you tell us about this? Again, only one of only four known diaries. What is this? What does it contain? What's what is it all about? Well, most recently, we started to really learn about the 1858 Fraser River Gold Rush when Daniel Marshall wrote his award-winning book, Claiming the Land. When Alexander Globe announced he was putting another book out on the Fraser River Gold Rush, I was wondering, well, what more can he add? And so Alexander Globe's new book is called Gold Grit Guns, Miners on BC's Fraser River in 1858. And incredibly, what he did was he went out and tried to find diaries written by the miners, I think once he came across this one, to see how many there were and to try and write a book based on the diary entries. So he only found four diaries that survived from the 1858 Fraser River Gold Rush. Most, of course, were written by Americans who were predominantly the visitors to what was becoming British Columbia. When a Hudson's Bay steamship went down the coast of San Francisco with a bunch of gold on it, and uh, all those leftover California gold miners heard about it and, and literally made every way they possibly could up to the Fraser River by steamship, by boat, by walking, etc. So one of them was a Canadian diarist, and the one we have is the only one in private hands and the only one written by someone from Canada. Unfortunately, they didn't write their name in the diary. It does come with a photo and an 1858 San Francisco Mint American 50-cent coin, so that helps establish the provenance. The photo certainly looks like it was taken in San Francisco as well, so it's likely that they traveled from San Francisco along with the American gold rush, uh, gold seekers, and, and came up here to Victoria. The diary informs us that they had a brother in Victoria, but again, they don't name them. They only give the first initial of their name, but at least they had someone to sort of liaise with or fall back on. And of course, because they were an experienced gold miner in in uh, the California gold rush, and they'd come all that way from Canada anyway, they were very well prepared. They got lots of supplies, so they had enough money to provision themselves basically to survive the summer. So they arrived in July 1858 in Victoria, traveled to the Fraser River, which was not easy to do and was as expensive as getting from San Francisco to Victoria at that time, and then came up the uh, Fraser River. When they got to uh, one of the confluences of the Fraser River, because they were so well-provisioned and Canadian, one of the local colonial officials took a shine to them and said, hey, I'm going to give you a letter of introduction to my sort of tax collectors, gold gold mining fee collectors, and you'll be able to send mail back through them, and I want you to also let me know what's going on on the river. Hmm. Of course, they employed uh, Indigenous Canadian guides 
who help them in two ways. One, they could safely help them uh, pass along the Fraser River. They could help them get more food by assisting them in hunting and, of course, trading for food because you carry food, but it's pretty basic and pretty bland, and you're just as likely to get scurvy from that diet. So very important to get some indigenous food, and so that was a huge help. And, of course, the unknown diarist makes a point of saying how helpful the indigenous guides are, and he does remark about sending mail privately back to uh, the official, etc., basically stating the privations, the conditions, uh, and so on on the river, he actually meets with fairly good success. He finds gold, he partners up with some different people, he gets a claim, but he ends up selling his claim in the end, coming away with, I want to say, $1,000, which was basically a lot of money in those days. And uh, unfortunately, we know that some notes in the end of the diary from later family members say that this poor unknown miner carried on to the caribou gold rush and subsequently drowned. So very sad that, uh, you know, this miner made it from Canada or uh, province of Canada to San Francisco, gold rush there, gold rush on the Fraser River, and then gold rush and caribou. But incredibly, the pocket-sized diary, the coin, and the photograph all survived. And uh, what an incredible trophy from a time when the Hudson's Bay Company uh, is transitioning to British Columbia and when the United States is not only booting out the uh, Hudson's Bay Company from Washington and Oregon territories and driving them up into British Columbia, but also encroaching on colonial British Columbia with 30,000 gold seekers on the Fraser River. And so how do we know that this was written by a Canadian? How do we know 100% this was a Canadian when, like you said, we don't have a name? Well, they generally use full names. It was recently rediscovered in Ontario. I personally believe from my research that it was deaccessioned some time ago by a U.S. uh, sort of California-based collection because it wasn't American. And uh, so the family background is from Ontario. The notes in it are from Ontario. The way he addresses, of course, it would be uh, Upper Canada then, the province of Canada then. The way he addresses people who writes about them in his diary is quintessentially politely Canadian. And, of course, some of the uh, spellings are the Canadian and British way rather than the American way. So it's, it's circumstantial, but the fact that he has family in Ontario family in Victoria. It's certainly ripe for further study. And Alexander Globe and his research painstakingly tried to identify them, but just couldn't absolutely nail it down. So there's room still for some original research. Of course, we would love for it to stay in British Columbia and uh, stay in Canada for sure. And uh, just an incredible artifact from uh, the early days of British Columbia. And of course, if British Columbia hadn't sort of taken the Americans in hand in the 1858 gold rush on the Fraser River. British Columbia likely would have been absorbed by the United States. And likewise, Canada wouldn't be uh, like we know it today. So an incredible artifact from that important time period. And, uh, And also, I guess... The other important thing to mention is we know they're Canadian because they didn't want to uh, get rid of all the First Nations or Indigenous people. They actually liked the Indigenous people and worked with them 
and you know, rather than hoping to uh, exterminate them or drive them from their lands, as the Americans uh, were more wont to do in California and elsewhere and, and even here. Hmm. And when we talk about the number of diaries, like you said, this is the only one, again, written by a Canadian, uh, one of four known diaries. Uh, how how was it or how was the, the, the person who found it able to kind of pinpoint where to look? And, and does that mean there could still potentially be others out there? Well, I think when you run a story like this, sometimes, although rarely, someone comes forward and says, hey, I got one of those. <laughs> Right. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, of course, there's always that chance. But uh, the, the odds of something new popping up from that long ago now are slim. And of course, the odds of something surviving from that long ago are, are also slim. And so where is this now when we, we talk about this? Well, actually, before we get to, to more about the sale, some of the quotes I found in, in the diary too really offer, and, and you've mentioned some of them, but they really offer that glimpse, even as something as it says, trail very muddy, my boots are done. Uh, when you think about what, what that, the conditions would have been like and somebody in that scenario with boots that had worn through and, and were done. Yeah, well, and, and that's actually from the end of his journey, where he's uh, he's walking out the new sort of Douglas Trail, and he finally makes it out. And, of course, you get injured when you're, even as a young, fit person, uh, you're out in the wilds, there's no medical care, so you usually get hurt, you've got a bum leg, and so that makes you walk you know, uh, differently. And, of course, the mud and the wet, wear at your shoe leather and of course the sharp rocks and sticks and and trees all uh, uh you know tough obstacles that uh, never mind that you're carrying a pack never mind that you're trying to get your winnings out safely and so again i think he was probably glad when he finally got to victoria to be able to get some new boots and and spend some time with his brother and so the diary itself, then, that it is um, the only one, I think you had said, the only one that we know of that's in private hands. What is happening then with the sale? So I, I normally am a weekly online auctioneer, and I've been in business for about 40 years, and I've been very fortunate to handle lots of historic material along the way. And from time to time, a client will approach me and say, I want something, get it for me, or I want you to sell this for me. And very occasionally a client will say, likewise, I just don't want it to go to auction. I'd rather sell it privately without the uncertainty or, or the you know, challenges of auction. So basically, this particular diary was previously offered at 45000 U.S. dollars by a leading bookseller in Ontario, Eventually, it last sold for 22000 Canadian dollars to the present owner. And, of course, they have transcribed it and used it as the basis for Chapter 8 in Gold Grid Guns. And so now they're hoping to get their money back on it. And, and based on those previous re- results, uh, previous offerings, rather, and the scarcity of it, I think $25,000 is a fair price. And uh, we're looking for someone to come and pay that. And uh, I suppose there's a small possibility that we'll get into a private bidding war, but that's not really what we're looking for. We're looking to get a fair price and find the right home for this. Interesting. So how does that work then if it's not more of a traditional auction? Is it people then will contact you or how do you make yeah. that sale happen? Oh, exactly. Yeah. Yep. 
I mean, I've already had interests from as far away as Switzerland and, of course, Washington State. And my client group are expressing interest. And so people beyond my client group may express interest once they hear about it. Certainly many hundreds of people are following it on Facebook right now on the Gold Towns or, yeah, Ghost Towns and Gold Rush page, etc., so uh, it's just fun to see lots of interest for it, especially on a relatively quiet holiday weekend. Great to be talking about our history. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Is there a time limit then or, or a window that opens that people can can bid or express their interest? or, or how, how? Someone's coming over from Victoria to view it on Friday. And I've got another client who was supposed to come in and view it on Saturday, but wasn't able to do so. So anyone who's interested can reach me through allnationstampingcoin.com and fairly easy to track down. All right. It's a very, very interesting story. And uh, I'm sure there will be a lot of people that would love to add that to uh, their collection if possible. Brian Grant Duff, we'll leave it there for today. But thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Jill. Very best. Thanks for being with us. And hopefully, whatever you are doing on this family day, you are having a good day. For many people, it is a long weekend, and that means people have, if possible, in some cases, taken a little trip, maybe gone south of the border. So we got to thinking it might be a good day to check in to see how things are going in Point Roberts. And joining us once again to talk about this is Brian Calder, who is the president of the Point Roberts Chamber of Commerce. Brian, great to chat with you today. Hey, Jill, it's an appropriate day on Family Day if we feel part of Greater Vancouver as much as we do mainland USA down here in Point Roberts, so, you know, topical. So there uh, <laughs> there you go. I, I saw some uh, a letter uh, written not too, too long ago, earlier this month, uh, by somebody talking about lineups at the border, and maybe that was a deterrent to why she wasn't coming down to Point Roberts as much. How are things going as far as the numbers and the returns of visitors? Well, there's lineups at the border, but they're not here. They're at Peace Arch. Um, we've had a couple of days out of the last three months, uh, but I'm literally a couple of days. It's been like 20 minutes or something, and uh, inconsequential in the bigger picture. But what's uh, November, December, uh, border crossings here, uh, individual people, uh, 60,000 November and December. Normally we'd get 120,000, so that's about half. And we'd also get a bump of about 20,000 or so in December, which we did not get this time. So therefore, Parcel Post didn't get its normal, or gasoline didn't get its normal Christmas bump or December bump, I guess it is. Um, So we uh, realize, of course, everybody's been devastated by COVID for the last two and a half years. And, And with our border lockdown for us, I mean, double jeopardy, but we're not getting the recovery. I mean, we go over to Bellingham or Blaine or Linden and Greater Vancouver, Delta, and it's like gangbusters compared to here. I mean, we just have not recovered, and we're not going to by the look of things. And why do you think there hasn't been the recovery or the same type of, 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 of people coming back or the same numbers of people coming back? Well, there's several factors, and as you know, even the federal governments have finally realized uh, that we're unique in Point Roberts, and therefore one would beg the question, do we require a unique solution? And, of course, the answer is yes. Um, So admitting that we're unique, um, 
the uniqueness uh, of our economy is basically driven gasoline and or was gasoline and parcel post. Then, of course, we got the golf and the marine and the recreational and seven miles of waterfront and so forth, which is also obviously very beneficial and helpful for our economy. But once we've broken people's habits, and we talked about this year and a half ago, and we said if we continue to have uh, people's habit of uh, people are creatures of habit, and they've been coming down here, in some cases, three and four generations and Point Roberts, as you know, is a default position for many families here. Seventy-five percent of the properties are owned by Canadians here because it's so convenient. And the boats are here, convenient, easy access out into the Gulf Islands and the San Juans. And so um, once you broke that habit and they moved their boats out because they've been deprived of using them for a summer, and then by the second summer they were out of here. And so we go down from 900 vessels to, you know, 200. Huge whack. And now that they find alternate accommodation, then many of them aren't coming back, at least not yet. And so, uh, you know, similar golf, find different places to go golfing. And so we've broken the habit, and we're trying to figure out how to get it healed. And uh, what about the population? Has it changed as far? And I know it varies very much as far as permanent residents and people who go for the summertime or spend more time there. But have you seen a decline in the population? Good point, because yes, we have. And we're down to probably 1,000 from 1,200. And even the people coming in, they're buying houses that Canadians have been selling and Americans have been buying. And the problem there is that it doesn't bring any new money in. It's just basically a churn. One person gives them a check for their house, and and they're out of here, and the new people are in. So there's no new created wealth. And the downside of it is, for the economy, is that they don't bring their family with them on the weekends and the summers. Uh, They're from Texas, they're from Montana, and so forth, whereas people who owned it were from Surrey and Richmond and, you know, even Abbotsford and whatever – and they bring people in every weekend during the summer, boating, down to the beach, bring the grandkids in, and so forth, which obviously they spend more money that's good for our economy. And then during the COVID again, with the lockdown, um, we had a lot of our labor people, service people, service industry people move out completely, move to Bellingham, Linden, Ferndale, over to the, what we call the other side uh, to find work. And they aren't coming back. And do you see the return of people? And uh, I know it, it was often, especially for people that maybe lived closer to the border or lived south of the Fraser, it was a place where often people would go. Uh, and the main drop may have been for gas that was cheaper than gas on the Canadian side of the border. Has that clientele returned? Uh, again, it's off about 50%. Hmm. Yeah, everything's off about 50%. There's nothing... The only, you know, there's been some real estate trades, but again, uh, to me, on the economic side, it's it's not new money. It doesn't create new wealth. It doesn't build a new house. It's it's a one family moves out, another family moves in. End of story. So, what do those families bring in spending money? And the one that left out, went out, moved out, brought more money in to the economy because of their family connections close by, who visited all the time then the new ones are going to bring in. So it's not helping that recovery. 
the whole issue of Point Roberts needs looking at federally and and provincially on both sides, statewide and Canadian. I mean, they have admitted through even legislation in Ottawa. I remember back when we got the legislation order in council that said Canadians didn't have to uh, test, you know, have a COVID test on the way back if they'd shown that they were vaccinated on the way in, which which helped. And that was Ottawa gave us that one. Mm. And and it just needs a much more. I mean, the whole border situation was enacted 200 years ago and has never been looked at meaningfully since. I mean, that's absurd. Imagine trying to run your company like that. <laughs> What would you like to see then as far as what do you think would be the top priority or what needs to be looked at and and what would you like to see then perhaps for the future to try and revitalize that area? Well, we're, we're, we have the expression that, you know, forgotten but not gone. And we'd like to reverse that to have it so that we're looked at with some meaning, like a border commission. Or, I mean, way back, what, 100 years ago, I guess they did the Peace Arch. And they did some meaningful work there where, as you know, you can go from the park from the U.S. side right up to the Canadian border and not have to do immigration and all the rest. And conversely, the Americans can come right up to the Canadian border and not have to do full immigration. And in between, the families can co-mingle and mix and so forth. Something like that should be looked at for Point Roberts. Now, I'm not saying I have all the answers. I have the observation of the statistics, which is more than the governments have themselves. So how can a little guy like me sitting in Point Roberts know more than them about the current issue? And all I want them to do is come and look at it with, with us, with Point Roberts. Look at it. And if you conclude, you know, uh, that they're not going to do anything, which would be wrong in my opinion, but if you are going to, fine. But at least you've looked at it. Right now, they're doing nothing, and they're continuing to do nothing. There's nothing on the slate, nothing on the agenda for Point Roberts. And someone says, oh, you think you're special? No, I know we're special. We're unique in, in North America. I was going to say Canada and the U.S. We're unique in North America. You cannot show me another place with the same factors happening that is happening in Point Roberts. Uh, and just to go back on something you said then and, and likening it to, and people will likely know, even if you've never gotten out of your vehicle or walked around uh, the park at the Peace Arch crossing, uh, people, uh, we've certainly talked a lot about that during the pandemic for the reasons that you just mentioned. How would that work, though, if it was more like an international park that uh, kind of took over and, and made it that way uh, on, on the border where Point Roberts borders Tawasin? Yeah. Well, there's several options, and one of them is if you tried to mimic the similar uh, theme uh, of on the ground at Peace Arch, you'd move the American border to the, the marina, so that from the marina on, you're into American immigration. And so a Canadian could come right to the marina, or a, a point out there on the south shore of Point Roberts, and as long as they stayed within that, all of Point Roberts, the five square miles, they don't have to do immigration. They can come from Canada, come down, enjoy their place. But the minute they cross that the shoreline on the south shore through the customs there, then they have to comply with U.S. immigration. Conversely, Americans could come up, leave the Canadian border where it is now on the 49th, and anyone coming from the American side could go right up to that border and not have to. It's still American 
co-op ter- territory in Point Roberts. The minute they cross that border, they have to comply with all immigration. And someone says, oh, well, how would you tax? And Look, the border probably costs us $20 million a year for little old Point Roberts. You tell me that you, you tax wine and beer enough to offset that cost? And no self-respecting crook is going to try and ever smuggle anything in Point Roberts. They can walk across up at Chilliwack, go through a farmer's field. They're not going to come through here at full view and oak water. Where are you going to go once you hit the the shore here? Swim to Seattle? I mean, it's bizarre. That's uh, No, that's uh, a good point, uh, indeed. Uh, do, do you have any uh, idea or thoughts that, uh, like you said, feeling kind of uh, forgotten but not gone, any uh, thoughts that, that people will start paying attention to this or that anything will change? Well, um, thankfully, with the help of CKNW Global and your show, um, we're hoping and we keep trying, and I just keep sending material out, and I say, read it and challenge me. I'm, I'm willing to admit I'm wrong. Get on the stage and debate me. Let's hear the other side. Come out of the woodwork, the governments, Canadian, U.S., all of them, and let's take it on. And they don't do it. Why? We know more than they do. All right. So until, until we can create enough interest publicly, and that's why I produce the stuff I produce, is to try and get some public attention. Not for me. For Point Roberts and for both countries. All right. Well, Brian, we will uh, continue to follow along and see what happens next. But as always, thank you so much for joining us and for talking about this today. Well, thank you very much, Jill, as always, and uh, happy Family Day. Thanks for being with us. Well, it is family day. Not clear how many people are spending the day. If you have the day off work or whatever it is you might be doing, spending the day with family, but some people definitely are. So we thought it might be an interesting time to look at volunteering and more specifically multi-generational volunteering. And joining us to do that is Diamond Isinger, who is the Provincial Commissioner with the BC Girl Guides of Canada. Diamond, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Well, this is a great day to be talking about this and uh, about volunteering and opportunities, uh, not only, say, for one member of a family, but for many members uh, to get involved. How do you go about kind of telling people about that and making sure people know about those opportunities? Well, I think it's important for folks to understand that right now, organizations in BC are reaching a crisis point in terms of their volunteer support. We have people having busier lives than ever, working in some cases more than one job, trying to keep up with the demands of life in 2023. And what we really need is some is some renewal and some turnover in the teams of volunteers who are out there. Ideally, that includes bringing in more young people and more diverse people to help power the organizations that we all love and care about that give services to uh, youth, to others all across British Columbia. And so if families are able to come forward and volunteer, that can create great opportunities, both in terms of the support that they give in that moment, but also the lessons that they're imparting upon kids and youth in their families about the importance of giving back. So it becomes a habit when they become adults themselves. And why is it, do you think, we're seeing kind of a drop-off or seeing not as many people getting involved and trying to make that time to volunteer? 
I've got a lot of thoughts about that topic. I mean, I believe that the last three years and the COVID pandemic caused some additional challenges, of course. But we also have a volunteer workforce or support force across British Columbia that is getting a bit older in many organizations. And we need to bring in more young people, more new people to be able to carry those causes forward well into the future. We're also dealing, though, with high cost of living, with competing priorities. I don't know that it's actually that uh, fewer people are volunteering today, but that each person has a little bit less time to give. We need the support of more people to do more and to provide more services as organizations. Do you think there's also too, maybe people are a bit uh, hesitant or think that maybe it's more of a time commitment than it needs to be? Yeah, absolutely. Organizations can do a lot to become more flexible in terms of how they accommodate people with different schedules and availability. Certainly in Girl Guides, we've spent a lot of time exploring this issue, how we can make sure that um, any volunteer who comes forward, that we're able to meet them where they're at in terms of their level of availability. But what we're looking for is volunteers who can serve as role models in the lives of girls, be Girl Guide leaders in local groups. And doing that as a parent, a grandparent, an aunt, or another female loved one to um, a girl in your life can be a really high quality way of spending time with that child and sharing some really important experiences while also giving back and volunteering at the same time. And I know you uh, talk about Girl Guides and guiding and being involved in that organization. Uh, That's one of of many places where people uh, could do this. But what types of roles do people seek out if they are volunteering, specifically if they're coming and wanting to be part uh, part of guiding? Yeah, I mean, we, we generally are looking for folks who can support our weekly Girl Guide opportunities. We think it's really valuable for girls to have access to a weekly network of peers, of supportive adult role models, which is why we try to provide that continuity and that support. But today's volunteering looks very different than it may have a decade or a few decades ago. We often have teams of volunteers who are very busy women who share responsibilities between them. In my own Girl Guide group in East Vancouver, I am one of several volunteers, and I'm also teaming up with a number of mom volunteers who are mothers of girls in our group as well as even a grandparent volunteer. She has a granddaughter in our group, and it's a great way for her to spend time with an extended family member as well. So being able to volunteer in that capacity, but as well for special events, camps, the experiences that we host throughout the year, it's a great way to share something really special with your child through Girl Guides, while ideally showing them the significance of volunteering. So if they go on to have children of their own, or at least even in adulthood for themselves, that they see the value and the importance of taking some time out of their week, be that an hour or several hours to give back. Do you see that as well when you have people volunteering and adults volunteering? Is it often the case that they did volunteer as a child and that's kind of uh, that people will continue to do that or are more likely to continue? Well, certainly in the Girl Guide context, we have a lot of our adult volunteers who were themselves youth members of Girl Guides. And so they've come back to give back to an organization that gave them a lot in their own youth years. We have others, though, who have come along who have never encountered Girl Guides before. um, And for them, it's a a completely new experience as adults, either as uh, women volunteers who are there with their kids, without any kids in the program, What I think, though, probably unites most of those people is, as you say, having had some exposure to volunteerism or the importance of service and giving back in childhood, 
having people in their family who are really passionate volunteers or committed to public service in some way, I think that really contributes to a lifelong willingness to help in any way that you can, which of course will look different for you at different ages and stages throughout your life, but at least having that unifying commitment throughout your life to wanting to give back, be that through Girl Guides or any other organization. And uh, I know we're talking about this uh, on this family day uh, when uh, a lot of people have a, a day off, which is great. Uh, and again, I think it comes back, like you said, uh, that people don't, in many cases, don't have a ton of free time. Uh, people are busy. Life is very busy. But uh, again, even carving out a bit of time if you can or, or finding a way to do that. Uh, and uh, can you talk a little bit about how, how rewarding it is to be able to do that? Absolutely. I enjoy greatly the time that I spend as a volunteer, both in my role as Provincial Commissioner of Girl Guides, but also as a local level volunteer with a group of my own. I think that it's a really uh, rewarding thing for people to be doing. You're not just giving back to others, you're developing your own skills, your own abilities, and having a lot of fun yourself. I hear a lot of, uh, a lot of times from our Girl Guide volunteers that a big thing that they enjoy about being Girl Guide volunteers as adults is doing a lot of the stuff that they loved as kids or that they never got to do as kids. So experiences to be able to go camping or uh, at sleepovers at local science centers or other activities like that, those are really special and unique experiences, whether you're sharing that with a child that you know or not. Well, it's a very good reminder and a reminder for the need for volunteers and just how much so many organizations rely on volunteers to keep them operational. Diamond, thank you so much for joining us and for talking about this today. Appreciate it. Thanks very much.